0: Secret Power. Secret Power is a great book, by the way. If you wanna read something on the Holy Spirit, I read it about ten years ago, and I remember it just transformed my whole outlook on God's empowering for his work. And I want to read for you an excerpt from that book. D.L. Moody was a famous famous evangelist who would go around preaching to crowds of, you know, hundreds and thousands of people and Many people got saved. It's been reported that over a million people have heard the gospel in D.L. Moody's lifetime. Um, So very, very spirit-filled man. And he was talking about one time he was preaching in uh, Chicago and another contemporary of his named Dr. Gibson was talking about in the planning meeting for their outreach about um, how do we find out if somebody is thirsty? And he said, if a If a boy was walking down the aisle of our churches bringing a good pail of clear water and a dipper, we would soon find out who was thirsty, and we would see thirsty men and women reach out for water. But if you should walk down the aisle with an empty bucket, you wouldn't find out. People would look in and see that there was no water and say nothing. So, he said, I think that is the reason we are not more blessed in our ministry. We are carrying around empty buckets And the people see that we have not anything in them, and they don't come forward. It's possible that we are not seeing more blessedness in our ministry because we lack the Holy Spirit's power. But there are a lot of questions that arise when we talk about the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? So we're going to cover all those topics, and we're going to cover it First by talking about what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. There's there's many ways to talk about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in us, but he's also with us, at times he's upon us and he's filling us. And those verbs have very different meanings. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit in us, sometimes people get confused and they think, well why do I have to be filled with the Holy Spirit? If I already have the Holy Spirit, I am a believer in Jesus. Therefore, I have him. So what am I praying for when the Bible says to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And it's speaking to the church and believers. What am I looking for? What am I expecting? And what am I asking? And I think when the, when we have this misunderstanding of what the Holy Spirit does, we lack the power for our ministry and therefore we see a lack of results. So let's read. Acts chapter 19, verse 1, and we'll pray and we'll discuss. It says, And it it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? so they said into John's baptism then Paul said John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him that is Jesus Christ when they heard this they were baptized in the name of the holy uh, of the Lord Jesus and when Paul had laid hands on them the holy spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied now the men were about 12 in all lord bless our time I pray, Lord, that this darkness is not a distraction and anything else, Lord, that we'd be able to fully focus on your word, your spirit, so we could be filled afresh and go out into the world and see true transformation happen. Make us agents of change in the hearts of many people. In Jesus' name, amen. Notice there's a couple things here. So we, we have in the early church, we have people who are called disciples who are walking around and then Paul says to them, Hey, listen, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Almost like it's, it's a a secondary thing. It wasn't simultaneous with them believing, but it's also important to note that this was the first instance in all of history when the Holy Spirit could live inside people in the, in, in the first place. So you have at this time, the day of Pentecost and the disciples are all in one accord in one place and the Holy spirit falls upon them and there's tongues of fire and there's all these manifestations of the spirit and all that stuff was signifying a new era when God's power had truly come. If those manifestations and sign gifts did not accompany the filling of the Holy spirit, many people could question whether or not the Holy spirit really did come. Has anything really changed? Does God really live inside of me? So the sign gifts, which oftentimes divide churches, the sign gifts were a sign to demonstrate God's power and his seal of approval, that this truly is of me, by God doing things that only God could do. This is why on the day of Pentecost, as Peter and these other disciples are speaking in different languages that they would have not known, all these different people from different areas of town and different cities and nations said, How is it that these people are speaking in my native language? It only could be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, authenticating that experience. So what does this mean for me? Well, and what does this mean for you? We have here disciples who are walking along. And Paul questions them, did you really receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, we haven't so much heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he says to them, well, then what, into what were you baptized? Verse 3, he says, into John's baptism. So then Paul makes a distinction here. He talks about a baptism of John the baptizer, which was, verse 4, a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. In other words, since Jesus did not die, When John the Baptist was preaching, John the Baptist was saying, Repent! Turn from your sins! Make straight the way of the Lord! But since Jesus had not been glorified, the Holy Spirit had not yet been able to come into the lives of people. So John was preparing people's hearts by starting with repentance, but it wasn't enough to just have the repentance. They also needed to have the relationship with Jesus. So here, clearly what you see are disciples— People that wanted to follow after Jesus, but they had not yet known Jesus until Paul was able to preach to them. And so they were baptized then in the name of the Lord Jesus, and there there were hands laid upon them. So you see a difference between John's baptism, which is a baptism from uh, repentance of their sins and their wrongdoings, and Jesus' baptism was union with Christ. When we're doing a baptism on September 20th down in Ocean Grove, when we're baptizing, what we're saying is you're identifying that you're leaving your past life behind. Just as Jesus died and he went into the ground, went into the tomb, and he rose again, you're putting your sinful life to death and you're resurrecting a new life with Christ. So here's a good question. Is your relationship with God Merely an account of all the good and bad things that you've done. So imagine your relationship with God is boiled down to a weekly meeting over over Excel spreadsheet where you list out all your wrongdoings and good deeds. And God says, all right, Charles, how was this week? Oh, well, God, you know, I did a whole bunch of things wrong. I did this, I did that, I did this. Well, what about the good things? Okay, uh, well, you see here, on, like, according to this chart, With our data, we can see that you are trending towards the positive. This is good. I'm glad that you're making up for your wrongdoings. Is that your relationship with God where you just kind of give an account of your past week? I know I got to do better. I know I have to read. I know I have to start being serious and take my relationship seriously. Or do you truly have a relationship with Jesus? Because we know the scriptures say that people will know the difference between those who treat God as this legal transaction and those that have this relationship with him. Jesus said in John chapter seven, verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That you're gonna be able to to see the works of the spirit of God coming out of your life naturally. This is why the Bible talks about The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As you live in Jesus and live in his spirit, you walk in the spirit, you suddenly don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now you're not doing the things that you used to do in your sinful nature. You don't want to do those things anymore. You have a completely different desire and appetite for the things that please God. But that means that Our repentance must include this relationship with him. So let me ask you this. If you were to walk away from God today, you said, I'm done with Christianity. I want nothing to do with the church. I want nothing to do with God. What would you lose? Friends, family members, social media followers. Would you lose just the superficial things? I have nothing to do on Sunday anymore. I don't know what to do with my life. I used to spend so much time at church and I used to spend my mornings reading the Bible and now I don't, I don't know what to read. Is that all that would happen? Or would you lose a friend? Would you use your relationship with God? I think about times that I felt like we lost our kids. You're just like a moment of freak out, right? You're like on the beach. And you, I don't see where my kids are. And your heart sinks in that moment. And in that split moment, it's like five seconds that you you can't find your kid. In that five seconds, I have this entire vision of my life. Like, I'm a terrible father. He's going to find me in 30 years after he was kidnapped and say, why didn't you come look for me? And like, be on the news, worst dad ever. You know, like all that happens in the span of five seconds. And you think about like, when you lose a relationship, when you lose a best friend, when you lose a father or a mother to cancer. There's something more than just the fact that you had someone to provide for you or someone to drive you to wherever you needed to go and help you with your taxes. There's something lost of the relationship. And we need to evaluate, do we have a relationship with God? True baptism of the Holy Spirit recognizes that Jesus's death covers our sin, but it also Through his resurrection, power gives us power to live that righteous life. So have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? How would you know? I'm glad you asked. Maybe you're thinking, well, having the Holy Spirit must be like having warm, fuzzy feelings. I raise my hand. Yes, I want to believe in Jesus. And then you're like, feel different. And you just have this expressible joy. You walk around and you're smiling all the time. And then that's because that's what you hear. And that doesn't happen to you. So then you're like, maybe I don't have the Holy Spirit because I've never had the warm, fuzzy feelings. And I've never felt like like I'm still not a morning person. And I feel like all Christians are supposed to be morning people where they wake up and instantly they're in fellowship with God. And like, what do you want to do today, God? I'm so glad you're my heavenly father. And you don't have that. Well, you see in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, this is how you tell. In God, you trusted after hurting the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You see, when you have the Holy Spirit, he is like the Bible talks about, he is like your engagement ring, he's a down payment of what is to come. And so, having the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like having an engagement ring. Like maybe you had the warm fuzzies. Oh, this is amazing. I can't wait to get married. And there might be times you're like, am I really, am I really getting married? Is this really happening? And you look down, oh yeah, this this is happening. There's still a commitment whether or not you feel like it. I have a wedding ring. Whether or not I feel married. The fact is I remain married and the Holy Spirit can enter your life. And at times you may, may feel distant from him, but it has nothing to do with space has everything to do with whether or not you truly know him. That's why you can live in the same house as your brothers and sisters and feel completely distant from them, even though spatially you're not. And the Holy Spirit can be omnipresent all around us. And we can feel so far from him because we haven't truly taken the time to get to know him. So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, let's talk about some of those other roles. The Father... He has this role of planning and sending. The son, he accomplishes what the father asks. And that's what we talked about last week when we talked about the lukewarm church. The spirit applies what the son accomplishes. Listen to commentator Wayne Grudem. This is what he says about the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. To manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. We know that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, right? And the Holy Spirit manifests that presence in particular places where he is welcome. So this presence is to bless. When, When we pray, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come fill this place in the atmosphere, you know, like that song. What are we praying for? What do you expect to happen You're just like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And then like people are like, I feel warm and fuzzy. I think I'm floating. This is amazing. Is that what you're expecting? Or are you not really expecting anything? You're just singing the song. When we sing it, here's the thing. We're asking for God's spirit to bless in particular ways upon the people whose hearts are willing and open. Second Corinthians, we see the blessings of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is a spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Wherever the Holy Spirit is, there is freedom and liberty. There's direction. We also see in John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The Holy Spirit is that That little voice, right? When somebody's quoting a Bible verse to you, sending it via text message, and you have that sense of that feeling of like, that's exactly what I needed in that moment. And God is real, and he is speaking to me right now. We also know the effects of what happens when we don't have the Holy Spirit. Job chapter 34, verse 14 says, if God should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, All flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So the Spirit actually animates the life in all of the world, which is really interesting. How did God give us life in the beginning when He created Adam and Eve? He breathed in the Spirit of God. And all God would have to do is retract that Spirit, and instantly we would all perish. This is why the Spirit hovered over the waters in the beginning in Genesis. Right from the beginning, we see the Spirit of God is the one who animated and manifests the presence of God. And in times throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit would be upon certain people. He'd be upon Joshua and give wisdom and leadership. The Spirit would be upon Samson and give him supernatural strength. The Spirit would be upon King Saul and he would suddenly be able to prophesy. However... We would see that the spirit would be upon people in the Old Testament, but then he would disappear. He would not always be permanently in power on Samson. Remember Samson, he didn't know that the spirit had left him. King Saul, the spirit departed as well. So why wouldn't God's spirit just remain in power all those people at all times? Well, here's why. John 7, 30, 30, uh, chapter 7, verse 39 says, That Jesus spoke about the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that's really important. Here's the first distinction, okay? There's a difference between the Holy Spirit being upon people in power and given inside people to make his home inside particular people. In the Old Testament, God's spirit would be upon people in power, but never given and live and abide in people's hearts. Why is that? Well, we know that the spirit was not able to dwell inside a home that was committed to the flesh and committed to sin. God's presence cannot dwell inside a space that is sinful. And therefore, the spirit could be upon people in power, but it could also depart. And the presence of God instead would make his home in, not in people's hearts, but where? We see historically in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. So when God decided to dwell with his people, it wasn't inside their hearts. He'd be upon people in power, but he would dwell inside the tabernacle in the most holy of holy places. And just to give you a picture of how God's presence was holy and different, we would see that The Holy of Holies was a a separated section of the tabernacle that had a curtain that was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. And they would send in a a high priest once a year to go into that Holy of Holies to, to offer a sacrifice on behalf of all the people to atone for their sins. Now that sacrifice was a sacrifice given in faith, looking forward to the future sacrifice that would be Jesus. But if the, holy, if the holy, if the high priest went in and he had unconfessed sin, undealt with stuff in his life, he would drop dead in the presence of God. So they would actually take a bell and they would attach it to a rope and they'd tie around his waist. The high priest would go in and if they heard the bell go and start jingling, they'd be like, oh, he's dead and drag him out. Like that was the whole plan. So you see, it was so serious. To be in God's presence. That's why, as we spoke about in prior weeks, when people had a vision of God, they would say, oh no, we've seen God, we're going to die now. Because no one can see God and live. At times like that, he could only give a portion, a peak of his presence to people that were still sinful. Even Moses, he was the only one allowed to go up to Mount Zion and meet God and speak to him. But he was not yet given the fullness of his presence, the fullness of his glory, because then even Moses himself would perish. So we see Leviticus chapter 16, verse two, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. God was even warning Moses' brother Aaron Hey, listen, don't just come in wherever you want because you will die. It doesn't matter who you are. You're still a sinful person before a holy God. And so sin and rebellion would cause God's presence to depart. At times, we see an account in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the people of Israel were using the Ark of God, which represented God's holy presence. And they said, you know what? We need to defeat our enemies, the Philistines. So we're going to take the Ark out of the tabernacle and we're going to go fight. And they, they treat it like a good luck charm. Like, God will be with us. And they took it. And instead, they lost the battle and they lost the ark. And from that, we know that uh, the, the um, what's his name? Who's the priest? Oh, just my brain died. Eli. Eli, thank you. So Eli, the priest, hears that. And then he goes, oh, no, Ichabod, the glory has departed. He falls back and he dies. So all this chaos happens. The Ark is lost. And the Philistines are like, we we won. This is it. We have God. We have the Israelite God. We win. And we can do whatever we want now. And instead what happened is God's holy presence amongst the Philistines caused all kinds of boils and plagues. And they said, oh man, this is terrible. Like we have their God and he's causing all these curses to happen to us. So what do we do? Like, I don't know. And they decide, you know what? Let's just... Take the ark, we'll put on a couple cows, and we'll just send it back. And if it goes back to the people of Israel, we'll know that truly this is the right God, right? And that's exactly what happens. The cows just kind of like take the ark and it just goes back, right back to the Philistines and the Philistines, the Israelites. So the Israelites see the ark and they start rejoicing, like, how did this happen? It's because you can't control God. He is still God. But the only reason why I'm telling you all of this historical background information is you need to get a picture you need to get an idea of how significant it is when God says, I want to live inside of you. You know, the psalmist said, heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. He says, Where, how will you ever build a house for me? What kind of temple can contain God? What kind of building or structure is glorious enough, beautiful enough to house God? And he says, your heart is exactly where I want to dwell. Isn't that crazy? Think about how much more thankful and reverent we should be when we consider the fact that God wants to make his home inside you and me. So that being the case means that we would see glimpses of the power and blessing in the Old Testament, but it would always come and go. So what was the solution? The solution is Jesus was the morally perfect one who could embody the Holy Spirit. The Spirit rested upon him. We saw when he was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon him. And once he did empower, Jesus could then do miracles in greater measure than all the prophets before him. John chapter 3, verse 34 says, For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. For the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. So when he gives the Holy Spirit, he doesn't just say, ah, just a little bit. You know, like I'll give you a teaser and then you got to come back to me for more. When he gives his Holy Spirit, there's nothing holding God back from giving you all of it. Except you and your willingness to rid yourself of self. So Jesus showed us what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. Not just raised the dead, but Lazarus, who was dead for three days. He rebuked demons in his own name. And he healed lepers with just a touch. Now you're like, well, that's Jesus. Of course he did those things. No, I'm telling you, Jesus showed us what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. I'll prove it to you. He said so in John chapter 14, verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. I'm not lying here when I say that. When Jesus embodied the Holy Spirit and demonstrated what's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he then said, You're going to do the same things I did. And in fact, it's going to be greater in impact because all of you can be embodied, Jesus's. All of you can be filled with God's Spirit and His power. Isn't that incredible? Now, the only way that we could experience the power of the indwelling spirit is if we're one with Christ. How is that possible? Jesus' sacrifice. When he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake and the rocks were split open. Demonstrating symbolically and in a very real way that God's presence was now available to all people and the blessing as well. Every person that would receive Jesus can now receive that Holy Spirit because now this is the future prophecy. The one day, what like people have dreamed in the Old Testament that one day God's Spirit would be available to all people. He would dwell in all hearts. Imagine what could happen if everyone had the Holy Spirit. We see the prophecy in Ezekiel where God says one day in the future, I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. I don't have to tell you what right and wrong is. You will know because that spirit that lives inside of you will guide you. There's an amazing opportunity that we have when we have the Holy Spirit. Even the Bible goes as far as to say that you don't need any teachers. You don't need any pastors. The spirit teaches you and he leads you into all truth. Not saying passes are bad or wrong or anything like that, but what I'm saying is today you have access to God. Now, that is a radical concept because realize in every other religion, every other form of worshiping gods is all about what God can do for you. In Egypt, they had Osiris, which is the god of fertility, make your sacrifice, and if you're unable to have children, you just do whatever you could so you could get what you want. In Greece, you had Poseidon, the god of the seas. Sailors would make offerings in order to have safe travels. You know, they would do things for these gods. It was transactional. I do nice things for you. You give me what I truly want. But here we have something better than that. The Holy Spirit doesn't just give you what you want. He gives you what you need. And God the all wise God who knows everything about this world better than you and I, he auto corrects your prayers when you pray them. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, the Bible says, for we don't know what to pray for. So we pray, Lord, give me this, give me that, give me the relationship, give me that. And as you pray, God gives you what you truly need because he's a heavenly Father who loves you. And if we, as earthly fathers and mothers, know what to give our children as good gifts, how much more your heavenly father who loves you and cares about you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the best thing is you don't have to do a single thing to get it. In every other religion, it's all about your sacrifice. If God hasn't answered you, it's because you didn't try hard enough. You would see pagan cultures like in uh, 1 Kings 18, the battle of Mount Carmel. You'd see these pagan priests of Baal cutting themselves, bleeding on this altar, saying, Bill, listen to us. Bill, show up. Answer. Do what we need. Do what we want. And instead, with Jesus, he was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. He took on our transgressions. Jesus did all the work and he took all the beating so that you and I, all we'd have to do is ask. Isn't that crazy? The only thing you have to do is ask. That's why Jesus gave the parable in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the persistent widow. He basically said, if you're not familiar with the Bible, say there's an unjust judge who literally hates God and hates people. And then you have a nagging widow who's just saying, give me justice day and night. Give me justice. Give me justice. Won't even an unjust judge who hates God and hates people gives justice to the nagging woman who asks. And then he says, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more will a loving father give his Holy Spirit to those who are asking and crying out day and night? But then he threw in this little caveat. He says, but when the son of man returns, will he really find faith on the earth? Sometimes we don't ask. Because we don't really believe he's going to answer. We don't ask for the filling. We don't ask for God to show up. Because we don't think anything's going to change. You're struggling with drugs, alcohol, addictions, relationships. You guys are struggling with a lot. And you haven't asked because you don't think it's going to work. But know tonight that God proved... 2,000 years ago, that he's he's willing to do what it takes to bridge that gap that's separating you from him. All you have to do is let him in. Like we talked about last week, Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks. If anyone opens the door, he will come in and dine with them. He will abide in your heart. So what does that mean in summary and conclusion tonight? What does this mean for the spirit to be in you? Well, the spirit in you means that you are saved, you are sealed, and you are sanctified. Briefly now, because I know it's dark and you probably can hardly see me or your Bibles. Saved, sealed, and sanctified. Also, I cannot read my notes. (laughs) So I definitely have to find a solution for next week. First of all, you are saved. I'm just going to wing it from now on. The fact that his holy, holy presence dwells within us is proof that we are His, which means that because he can't dwell in the unredeemed heart, the minute that we say, "Lord, I'm yours, I want to believe in you." That's the minute that he's choosing to say, "I got you." And once he got you, you know that you are sealed, thank you. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter one verse 22 the Holy Spirit who has, or God who has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. John chapter six, verse 40. This is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. So, you know, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you've ever been saved, if you've ever believed on Jesus and his sacrifice, it's not like it's going to be undone. We believe that once saved, always saved. You can grieve the Holy Spirit, but you are sealed because he's stronger than you. And though you may stumble, like my children, they might fall. I'm not going to let them fall into danger. Even if I allow them to run around, the second that they're about to hurt themselves, I will do what it takes to protect them. And lastly, you are sanctified. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. So you're sanctified, you're set apart. He has a job for you and for me to do. So then your question might be, if we have the Holy spirit in us, why does it seem like the book of acts and that church is so different from us? Why does it seem like when we look at people in history So many examples of people that had faith, trusted God. And when we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's way different, right? That's what we're going to cover next week and the week after. So don't miss it. But first we have to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. I hope you're encouraged because once we understand him and begin our relationship with him, then we are in the first step in our journey to being filled with him in power. Let's pray.